Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Thanks, Laura, again. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, so if you're visiting for the first time, welcome to you especially, as Spence said earlier. Uh, we are in the book of Acts right now, so as you just heard, we're going to look at Acts 3. So if you have a Bible or know where that is, and, and a phone app or a Bible, please turn there if you want some context, but it's the whole chapter, Acts 3, 1 to 26. This will be uh, more of this will be on screen here, too, as we go. 
Um, some of these longer sections of Acts we're going to have read before they're preached, um, just because we're not going to have time to really kind of delve deep into every word or every clause, and so at least you get the whole idea before we uh, go back and uh, kind of preach the mountaintops of the passage, so to speak. And so we'll do that uh, today and then several more times throughout the series before it's over. Uh, but today uh, we are in Acts 3, 1 to 26. We're going to look at the healing of the lame beggar, um, Acts 3. Uh, and actually right after this too in Acts 4, he comes up again. He's kind of the context that uh, the uh, sort of the, um, not the right phrase is, but the uh, spark essentially that kind of ignites this uh, anger uh, and this uh, contempt from these re- religious Jewish leaders. Uh, and so uh, Peter talks to them too, but it's all about this, this commotion that happens in the temple courts and this healing is uh, the spark for that. So we'll come back next time we preach this, which will be in January, and, uh, and summarize, I guess, a little bit too, but we'll meet him again a little bit later on. Um, so, but Acts 3, 1 to 26, uh, at this point in the story, to catch you up to speed, uh, that Jesus has, Luke wrote the, this book, and he also wrote the Gospel of Luke, so kind of volume 1, volume 2. At this point in the story, Jesus has died for our sins, he's been raised from the dead, and he has ascended for us, and he sent the Holy Spirit to fill the first Christians, enabling them to preach the gospel in languages they formerly did not know, with courage and clarity. People hear it, they hear the gospel, they trust in Jesus through it, and they're saved, and just like that, the church is born. And so then, like last week we talked about, the church starts to, to gather and meet, to learn, to set on, under teaching and preaching, to worship, to eat together, to give to one another, to pray and to evangelize, to share that Jesus is alive with more people. So that's going on as well. Many other things too, but we, we looked at, at that last week. But during this time, it also says many signs and miracles were occurring. So that, that leads us to today's passage. So last week was kind of a broad statement. Many miracles and signs and wonders were happening. Today is the first of a few times in Acts that we're kind of, we drill in, do more specifically the story of a, one of these particular signs and wonders. And so it's more of an elongated kind of view, more of a micro view versus the macro statements, kind of a micro view of one of these, uh, one of these miracles. And so today then we're going to look at, basically it's, it's the story of Jesus miraculously healing a lame beggar through the apostles by the Holy Spirit. Peter makes that clear. It's Jesus doing this, right? So he clearly calls out people that are thinking that it's him, that it's John, and he says, why do you think that? And we'll talk about that later on. But he, he says that it is, um, it's Jesus doing this. He, he's, he's alive. He's at work by the Holy Spirit through us. It's not us doing this. And so, and, and as we just heard too, the, the passage actually breaks down pretty neatly into three sections that I think also kind of get at the meaning. So if, you, if you're a note taker, pull out that sermon insert and you kind of see where we're going, but I'll just say it too. There's the healing that happens at, at the top. There's a clear and kind of noteworthy response that tells us a lot as well theologically. Like how do they respond? What do people say or what does a cripple do? And what happens when the crowds gather? We'll talk about that. Then the sermon. So healing, response, and then Peter takes the opportunity to preach the gospel in light of the healing. So lots going on there. We'll, we'll cover not all of it, but a lot of it, at least the main parts today. So. so first, let's go back and kind of summarize this healing a little bit. So the healing takes place in the first few verses, the first section. So it starts with Peter and John going up to the temple to pray at the ninth hour, which was like 3 p.m. And a lame man, and it's careful, Luke's careful to note, from birth. So lame from birth was being brought up by others on a mat to ask people for money. And he was laid at this gate called Beautiful. All right, so even at this juncture, as some of you have read the Gospels before, uh, whether Luke or Mark, they have versions of um, this miracle as well in Jesus' life, and that's kind of the point. 
at this juncture, we're supposed to kind of be thinking a little bit about Jesus and kind of hearken back to some things Jesus did miracle-wise when he also healed the cripple who was brought to him on a mat. That's from Luke 5. And who also healed a man who had a from-birth condition, blindness, in John 9. And so again, it's part of the big point here, just kind of broad scale, is that we're supposed to get a glimpse of Christ almost in our peripheral and say, wait a minute, that kind of looked like Jesus there for a second. That's part of the point. Luke's writing this in a way, recounting things in a way that would sort of uh, live in the shadow of what Jesus did before this. Or in other words, we're supposed to think he's alive. Jesus is still here. He's at work through the Holy Spirit in the lives of his church. So actually, even before he died, back in John 14, I don't have a verse for this, John 14 something something, but anyway, he promised his disciples that after he ascended and sent the Spirit, they would continue the things he was doing, but this is from John 14, 12, this latter part, he would even do, they would even do greater things than those as well. So they continue the miracles, they continue the physical ministry on some level, some of the teachings, they continue those things Jesus was doing, but then they'd go past all of it and do greater things than those as well. And that start of, sort of starts to hint here at the point of the whole passage, which we'll come back to in just a few minutes. But back to these first few verses here, uh, this is, it's quite an exchange, isn't it, between these two? I love this exchange. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of Acts. The, the guy asks for money. He's crippled. He's thinking he's going to get money. It says Peter and John stare directly at him, and they say, look at us. He's clearly the cripple, the paralytic, expects to get some money out of it, but they say, we don't have any money, but we do have something for you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately, it says immediately starts walking, and not just walking, leaping, clinging to the apostles, hugging them, and praising God. And so, even that kind of that uh, juxtaposition between the immediate here, the immediacy, from birth, he's been lame, right? So from birth, he's had this condition. But immediately when Jesus' name is invoked and kind of spoken over the situation, immediately all of that's erased. It's like it doesn't matter how long it's been, decades or how long it's been. Uh, he's, he's instantly healed, immediately. It's actually a word the Gospel of Mark uses a lot to talk about Jesus' ministry when he speaks and heals. Immediately things happen a lot. So again, it's kind of a callback to the way and the speed by which, the decisiveness by which Jesus speaks and teaches and especially heals. So he immediately starts, starts walking and, 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 and talking and praising God and worshiping and thanking the God and the apostles. And then all these Jews who are there outside the gate of the temple, but then kind of in, because they go into the temple after this, all these Jews who were there at temple saw it, and as you might expect, they marveled, right? Like any of us would if we were there. We'd say, what just happened? We see this guy every day. He's been there his entire life asking for alms, asking for money, and now he's jumping around like with super strong legs. You know, it's like Jesus didn't just like make his, his legs able to walk. All the muscle atrophy over those years, gone instantly. It's like he just makes the, the, the something appear out of the nothing. The big way God works, the something comes out of nothing here. And they marvel and they ask about it. All right? So it's basically a summary of what happens here. And, and before we move on into the response and the sermon, there is some rich symbolism here to highlight as well that helps us understand, I think on a deeper level, which is easy to miss, but on a deeper level, what is God saying to us through this passage? How is he using this to edify us and to build us as Christians, or if you're not a Christian yet, to, to show you what, what is the bullseye of Christianity? What did Jesus come into the world to do? Why do miracles like this happen? So not just the what that they did, but why do they happen? 
And the way he turns a phrase here, the way he crafts the narrative, tells us a lot symbolically about the character of God and the nature of, of the gospel. So, so a few things here uh, to start. First is this phrase, the beautiful gate. So first, isn't it interesting that the gate is named? It seems very incidental, doesn't it? It just does to me anyway. It's like, well, why is, maybe the, like you'd mentioned there's a gate that was outside the temple, but why do you name it? Like, why call it beautiful? And I think, among other reasons, I think this, this tells us, reminds us that this whole thing, because it's mentioned at the beginning of the passage, this whole thing is beautiful to God, or it's about to be beautiful to him. The lame man is beautiful to him. The healing itself is beautiful to him. The crowds who are drawing near, like Christ has compassion on them too, who are drawing near and who are not saved yet, they're, they're not children of God yet, they are beautiful to him. But especially the gate, right? Because the gate is the thing that's named beautiful. And I think what that tells us is that it reminds us that outcasts like this guy or excluded ones or sick ones or separated from God ones because he couldn't go into the temple of God's presence in, in Old Testament uh, terms, he couldn't go in to this kind of symbolic presence of God, separated from God ones are all now able to draw near to God. Like, like that idea for God is beautiful. Having access to God is a beautiful thing to him as well. Which in turn then points us back to John 10, 9, which is where Jesus kind of famously says, I am the what? I am the gate. That's me. He calls himself the gate. A lot of I am statements in John, but one of them is I am the gate to the fold of God. And so in that sense, I think this reminds us that Jesus is, as the Son is beautiful to God the Father, but the idea of Jesus being the access point to salvation, that whole idea is beautiful to God. It's sweet to him. He wants us to know it. it is, it's a, a joy for him to think about it and what it means for sinners like us. Jesus is the gate by which sinners enter, the only access point to salvation. And this whole, and we're going to get some more of this as kind of the, the big why or how, how do we see that more. We'll see it here. But, but just initial touch point, uh, the beautiful gate means uh, something great's about to happen here, and some, but something deeper than just the healing. Uh, Jesus is in play. All right, so second uh, is Peter, is this idea that uh, Peter directed his gaze at this guy. So the apostles here represent Jesus per Peter's words. Remember that when he says, why do you think we did this? Is actually Jesus through us. And so he, but he, he's linking himself and what he does with, directly with Jesus himself. All right, so the apostles represent Jesus. So, so, so then, when they do things like direct their gaze at this man, it tells us, reminds us that God is like that as well. He, too, sees us in our afflictions or our distress. It reminded me uh, back in Genesis when it says uh, that, that God saw Hagar, the mistreated, abused, cast-out servant of Sarah, again, back in Genesis, with baby Ishmael in her arms, thinking that I have no way to care for him, I have no money, I, I have nothing, I'm going to let him die by this thicket and go over there until he stops crying. That's how, like, dire things were. But remember what happens then? God pursues her and cares for her, comforts her, saves the baby, and saves her. And then she says, she actually kind of names God, which is, people don't name God, but, but she kind of softly does by saying, God, you are the one who sees me. You are the God who sees me. And it's this amazing moment where God is caring for this kind of an antagonist, actually, kind of an enemy in the story. If you know that whole narrative, we'll go back to summarize that whole thing, but kind of an enemy there that, and she's like all of us in that regard, but God is seeing people who are, 
antagonists. She, she, he, he's seen people who are at odds with him. He's seen people who are in trouble and who are distressed and who are sick, unspiritual, and physical, and just these helpless levels, even like the baby, like Ishmael. So the point here is, and there's lots more we could say about that theme, but the point is, that's the beginning of the Bible, the Hagar story. So this is what God is like repeatedly in Scripture and in our lives. He sees us, and, and of course that relates closely to him caring for us because seeing here leads to healing. And so the, the idea of God's compassion here is literally off the charts in, in Acts 3. And then third, the third symbol here, the third and final one, this is the most important in a way, from verse 7. It says that they, Peter and John, or, or just Peter, lifted him up by the right hand, and it says this phrase, really important phrase, raised him up. All right, so, so here's the big question. This language, this phrase, this clause, raised him up, has already been used once before in Acts. Do you guys remember where? Just a chapter before, in Peter's sermon, it says, in Acts 2, in reference to Jesus, it says, God raised him up. And so when it says God raised up Jesus, what is that referring to? What event? His exactly, his resurrection. So back in Acts 2, this is from 2.24, God raised him up, referring to Jesus' resurrection. And the, the idea here, we'll, we'll prove this or show this more as the, as the whole sermon goes on here, but just for now, see that the cripple's healing is being painted in resurrection imagery. By, by design, Luke's writing both of these, and the way he's writing about, he could have just said that the cripple stood up, right? Or they carried him up, or, or they lifted him up, but raised him up. This is the exact thing that happened to Jesus when he was raised from the dead, when he was resurrected. So the cripple's healing, this is, this is the symbolic kind of deep-seated theology behind it, is a mini-resurrection's happening here. The cripple's healing, the paralytic's healing, is being painted in imagery of the resurrection and just generally rising from the dead in language that, that caters to that. Which then helps us point, kind of points us beyond the healing then to something bigger. See how it's kind of already starting to do that? There's something more here than just this guy's healing. But to see that more, we have to keep reading. So we're already starting to see that symbolically, linguistically, and theologically here in the way that Luke is writing and what that's kind of calling us back to earlier in the story. But we also see it in the response of the people. So that's the second section, the response. Um, and the question I'll start with here uh, that, again, helps us to see this whole idea is what happens immediately after the healing? You guys remember from Laura's reading or just with open Bibles before? <laughs> like what, what happens right after he is healed? A crowd's drawn together, right? A crowd comes together, and then what? Peter heals a bunch more cripples and invalids, right? Not at all. Not even one. Isn't that fascinating? Like, why not at least one more, Peter? Or maybe two, if you're feeling lucky or generous? Like, why not a couple more? It's just one person, and then he addresses the crowd and preaches about Jesus' death and resurrection. One of my big questions I've always had about this, at least I think it's part of the tension that we, we have here in the story, is there were masses of people here. You know, so why aren't there big lines formed of all the cripples in this row, all the blind people in this row, all the demonized in this row, all the whatever's in this row, uh, the, the people dying, or even the dead? Bring, bring, all, bring all your dead out here, right? And we can heal them. Like, wh why isn't that happening? A big healing ministry transpires. 
Not even, not even a, a wisp of that, right? Not even a sense by, uh, of that uh, kind of uh, ministry happening. Instead, Peter stands up, addresses the crowd, and preaches about Jesus. And his address might not seem super kind at first, uh, but it actually was kind. It was very kind because it was full of truth. Kindness and truth are always tied. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be jerks with truth. We can. We've got to be careful with that. It's possible to be a jerk and still be right, and that's, that's not okay. Um, but here, I think Peter is being kind kind of by way of being truthful about where people are at, what it means to be human and sinful and what we need from God and, and so forth. We'll see that here. Uh, but, so, but it was kind. And so he says here, he starts by saying basically, and I'll summarize, why are you looking at us as though we did this? That's kind of the first thing, right? Why are you looking at us as though we, we did this healing? Jesus did this. You know, this, this Jesus that you, quote, you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Remember that, when that whole, the whole thing happened? Like, Pilate was certain this guy was innocent, but, and he offered up a murderer, a convicted murderer, Barabbas, to say, if you cho- choose one, once a year he does this, choose one and, and they'll be set free, thinking, They'll choose Jesus because they have nothing on him. Instead, they chose the convicted murderer instead of the author of life. This is a very, very, very huge indictment here. It's very damning. But he's saying, this is the same Jesus. You chose a murderer to be granted to you instead of the Son of God himself. This is not seeker-sensitive Peter. He's calling them out. He's calling them murderers, God-haters, and ones who just make bad life choices every day. People like us. And so now as we tie all of this, so think everything what we just talked about, so the healing to those kinds of statements, then to the sermon, as we tie all of this together to what just transpired with the healing, what he's really saying here in context is to the crowd, you all are cripples too. All of you listening right now, you are just like this man just was, but in spiritual terms. You all are cripples too. And this is, this is not surprising because Jesus does this as well in his teachings. And, and I'll, I'll point us back to Luke 5 here. This is a big place he does it. And it's the sister passage, in a sense, to what's going on here in Acts 3. So what I was referring to before when I said Jesus did the same kind of miracle, one of those is from Luke 5 when Jesus he- heals the paralytic brought to him on a mat through the roof. You guys remember that story? If you read that before, Mark 2 is another version of this story, if you've seen that one. But it's the same, it's, it's a little bit different, but they complement, they're the same. He's brought through a roof, this cripple, by his friends on a mat to get close to Jesus because there's no way in the house. There's too many people trying to get close to him. So it's this really kind of dramatic story, lots of tension here. But they finally get to him, they lower him through the roof. And do you remember what Jesus does right when the cripple's brought to him? The first thing Jesus does? He doesn't heal him physically. What does he do? Forgives his sins, Right? lowers him through the roof, and they're thinking, kind of like this, uh, this, this, la- this lame beggar here, thinking he's expecting to get some money. You know? It's like the, the guy's lowered through the roof, probably expecting a physical healing, and instead Jesus says, I forgive you your sins, my son. So it's really kind of full of drama and tension here where there's probably a little bit of disappointment, I would think, or at least a little shock by the people that are lowering him through the roof and from the paralytic himself too. Like, I thought you, this is what you did. Like, you you healed cripples. Like, I've seen that, heard, heard about this stuff, and I expected that, but I got the forgiveness of sins. Like, what would he be thinking? Was that disappointing? I've always wondered. He doesn't say. Disappointing, or what, was he full of thankfulness? But probably at least a little bit of um, some strangeness there, and a little bit of, oh, I didn't expect that. 
Now, the people who are upset are these religious rulers, these Pharisees, who, who basically say, who has authority to do this? He's acting like God. God's the only one who can, who has the authority to forgive sins. How dare he? And so kind of on cue, Jesus says, right after that kind of sensing their thoughts, it says, Jesus says to them, what are you so upset about? I just did the harder, more important work of forgiving him his sins, but so that you might know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, watch me do the lesser work now of healing this man of his paralysis. You guys follow that argument? This, I'm summarizing, but basically he says to people who are upset about his acting like God in that moment, which he was God, he had authority to do that, obviously, but they don't know that, but they're upset. He says to them, I just did the harder and more important work of forgiving him his sins. Because who can actually do that? Who can actually forgive? The harder, more important work of forgiving. But so that you might know that I have authority to do that, I will say to this person, take up your mat, walk away, and go home. And he did, and immediately he was healed. Right? Then right after that, then, he kind of theologizes some more about this. He says, and I've got this on screen, he says in Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so the big point here is lots to say about this, but the big point is physical sickness points to spiritual sickness. It, it's a, it's, it's a, in one sense, kind of downstream of sin. It's part of the fall. It's part of the effect of darkness and distance from God in the world, but it's also something that kind of images a greater inner cancer. This is what Jesus is saying here by way of parallelism, essentially. He's saying sick people are like uh, an, an image of, sin, of sinners, and healthy might be an image in our minds, being well, of being righteous. And he said, I didn't come for the well and the righteous. I'm like a doctor. I came for those who are sick and know their need. But just by a way of using those words, he's saying that he's given us a paradigm here. He's, he's using the healing as an opportunity to talk about the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that interesting? The healing is an opportunity to talk about a greater healing and to give us a paradigm for understanding why physical healings exist at all in the Bible. This is why. To give us like a platform, a stage, to show off the greater, more difficult work of how in the world God is going to forgive the sins of sinners. How can he be just and good and merciful at the same time? And so in that part of the story, he's looking ahead to his death and resurrection, which is where that happens. And so, back to Acts 3, this is exactly then, and I'm doing this, we see an example of how Jesus is doing this more clearly in his ministry, where Peter is kind of building off of that, healing in the same way to point us back to that, but also drawing from its theology just by way of how he's acting, by what he says and what he doesn't say, what he doesn't do. Again, not healing anyone else physically, not one more person amongst the crowds. And yet, he kind of did at the same time, right? He offered a greater type of medicine, a greater type of cure for anybody who would receive the gospel, for spiritual invalids. So Peter says the same thing. The healing occurs, the crowd gathers, and he says, let me comment on what you just saw. Hear me, everybody. He, he, calls, he calls them to hearing, right? Hear what I'm saying. Let me, let me point you to what just happened and, and tell you who did it and for what reason it happened. And then to, to basically say, you all are like him spiritually inside. You all are cripples, and you need a resurrection, and Jesus is the answer. 
And so then he starts to preach. It kind of already did by saying those things I was just saying, but he kind of starts. Well, let's go in now to look at the rest of and kind of summarize the sermon. This is the third and third part here. Verses 17 to 20. Let me read that again. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. All right, so let me, let me, just, let me summarize this say it a little bit differently. What he's saying is, Christ's sufferings, his death on the cross, which were foretold by God through the prophets long before, are directly tied to sins being blotted out here. You guys see that? Christ suffered by God's design, and he suffered by, it was plan A always, his sufferings are directly tied to sins being wiped away or blotted off of our DNA in our hearts. So Peter then says that, and then he calls these people to turn back, which implies that they were going a different way, away from God, away from truth, away from the land of the living, right? Turn back because you're like lost sheep. Repent, another word for turning, repent, and now face this suffering of Jesus by faith. That's what the sermon's saying. Face this Jesus by faith so that you might be forgiven. Or to use, to borrow from some of these words spiritually and symbolically, like we were saying before, face the fact that Jesus became crippled or lame or paralyzed on the cross for the spiritually paralyzed and the spiritually crippled. Turn to that Jesus, face him, believe in him, trust in him, and you, your sins will be forgiven. Your sins will be blotted out. See, it's this weird thing where, on one, in one sense, Peter's blaming these Jews for killing Jesus and these other Roman rulers who actually did the crucifying. He's blaming them and, and saying, and bringing himself into that as well because he denied Jesus. I mean, he's not saying he's high and mighty or better. He's just he's saying, this is what you did. But then he's saying um, that God also made that as plan A. Like, it's like he used this sin to be the thing that would save people from that very sin. Isn't that crazy? It's just like this mind job. But anyway, but it's genius. God is using the evil in the world to suffocate and destroy it at the same time. Like he's absorbing it in order to kill it and, and absorb it. It's, it's masterful. Anyway, and all along then we had this picture of a God who is not aloof to our sufferings or not like unable to empathize. So, you know, another side benefit to this like gospel, this way of God working is God is like entering into and absorbing and, and addressing face, like face on, uh, straight on, all of, our, all of our wickedness, all of our evil, all of the injustice in the world, everything. And so, at this, so we can't say then that there's nothing that Jesus didn't somehow address and, and attack for. So, but anyway, kind of a sidebar. All right, so, but, so that's the sermon, basically. It's kind of, I'm summarizing a little bit there, but that's basically what he's saying by way of quoting some of the prophets and, and, and pointing people back to God's plan that as Christ would suffer and, and for the sake of our sins being blotted out. All right, but here's the tension. All right, so hang with me a sec. Here's the tension. Cripples physically can't turn, right? There's supposed to be a linguistic tension here, I think, between this call to move. Christ died for sins, so move towards it or do something. And this man being physically paralyzed on a mat and can't move an inch without people carrying him uh, to, to the gate. And so physically speaking, cripples can't move. 
and they need to be carried by others. And so I think that there are a couple, there are two very damning things here in this passage. The one we are, well, I just said, but the one is we're crippled, spiritually speaking, we, and we can't move. And we're poor. We, we don't have any money. If, in fact, this cripple is supposed to be an image of us, which, which that's, that's the point, then we're crippled, but we also don't have any money. We can't buy anything. So we're crippled and poor. The second thing is, though, we have chosen a murderer over God's son. So I think the second, we have to, the second place we have to see ourselves in, in this passage is in, in the place of the Jews. Just like last week or two weeks ago we talked about this, we've chosen a murderer over God's son. So it's fascinating here how, if you saw this two weeks ago, you're seeing a repetition. So remember, when things are repeated, they're there for emphasis. Look at the way that sin is talked about in the Bible. Like, Peter doesn't come out and say, yeah, I know some of you lied once when you were eight years old. You know, we're way past that, way past that. And he doesn't even bring it up anyway. How is sin described in the Bible? In two words, high treason, high treason. That's what you've done, that's what I've done, that's what every human being who has ever lived has done, no matter how old. We've been born into this state of rejecting the king, of choosing a murderer, a convicted criminal, over the author of life who spoke us into existence in love. We had like one kind of final chance, sort of by way of the Jews in, in the gospel story when Barabbas came forth, the murderer Pilate, saying, I'll give you one more chance to let Jesus go. It was one last chance, and they're kind of humanity's heads in a way, so we were there with them, to choose God, and we chose the complete opposite. Sin is high treason. Sin is denying God. Sin is rejecting the king. And, that's, and so when Peter talks in these terms, he's, he's, not that there's not more to say about sin. There obviously is. But notice what he just goes right to. And I think he does that to heighten the problem. So the point here is that you and I, the crowds here in 2,000 years ago, the crowds, us in this very room today and everything in between, you and I had or in some ways have seething hatred for God. That's the problem that God is overcoming in the world. That's sin. We have seething hatred for God that we don't even realize is there. And a lot of times, most times even, it doesn't even look like active hatred. It just looks like, I just don't need him. Some contempt for him and his ways. Or just flat out not believing that he's good. That is, that, that's the sin that Peter holds out and says, this is who you are. This is what you've done. This is what Jesus came into the world to absorb and to ultimately blot out and eradicate. But in the meantime, kind of also by way of seeing ourselves as cripples, he's dallying the whole thing up and saying that this problem is way bigger than you once telling a lie when you were a kid. Yeah, no one's perfect, we say. The Bible never talks about, yeah, we're not perfect. That's the way we talk. But the Bible says, no, that the problem is much, 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 much more grand. Or to put it this way, our problem is beyond our ability to overcome it. That's a key Christian doctrine, and I think a key thing we're seeing here symbolically uh, with the paralytic. Our problem is beyond our ability to overcome it. Laura Rhinus uh, sent some of us staff this, uh, she's our intern here, if you don't know Laura, she just read the passage if you didn't know her, um, so she was up here, but she sent some of us staff this um, meme last week, joking, to be clear, um, I don't want you to leave here thinking, wow, Laura's theology is like the worst thing I've ever heard. Um, it's just a joke because sometimes it's kind of fun to make fun of bad theology. Like, 
The prophets do in the Old Testament. Paul does. He like sarcastically rips on bad theology sometimes. Jesus does in a way. And so, um, but she sent this, uh, this meme of this, um, okay, I thought it was a bunny. And then some people after the service said that's a red squirrel. But I don't know what it is actually. It's kind of like, if you're sitting there, I'm going I'm to go with bunny. If you're sitting there thinking that's definitely a red squirrel, um, that's okay. Like that's... <laughs> Or if it helps, just think uh, rodent hybrid or something. I think Emily Kleiber said that's a, that's a um, Leah, you were on this uh, thread, weren't you? I don't know what you thought, but I think Emily said it was a rodent hybrid. Well, it doesn't matter. So I, I just, I'm going to say bunny, but don't get sidetracked and think, oh my gosh, it's a squirrel the whole time. Uh, it might be a squirrel. But um, anyway, point is, that the bottom, so she sent this thing out joking and, and we were reading this, but this is what it said. May all beings everywhere awaken to the inherent goodness that dwells within themselves and all others. Aw, right? That's kind of one of those aw. And he's, the bunny's kind of, yep. It's a feel-good moment for that thing. But um, anyway, this came through her feed. So now take the bunny or whatever it is out of this picture and put those words in your mind underneath a picture of an intelligent-looking spiritual monk or mystic. And instantly, you've got a wonderful expression of modern-day pop psychological theology. This is what people believe, even inside the church. All right, so um, the, the bunny's there. Don't let that kind of be like, oh, this is a straw man thing. It's, it, in one sense, it, the picture caters to that, but it's not. Like, this is actually, um, this is a real thing. And maybe you've even seen this before, something like this uh, kind of come through feeds or whatever and, and posted. Um, if people don't know any better, you know, even like inside the church, if, if you haven't read the Bible, you might think, man, maybe God does say that somewhere or kind of affirm that. All right, anyway, but here's my response. So we're just kind of going back and forth and, and laughing about this a little bit and mocking it. Um, but here, here's my um, response, again, kind of in jest because I know it wasn't like actually real, but, but this is what I'm thinking. That's great, little bunny, but what about the red-tailed hawk circ circling above your head right now waiting for the opportunity to sink its talons into your neck. How will your inner sense of goodness save you from him? Right? I mean, it's just dumb. You know, so, like, in other words, this means our, our problems are too big for morality to save us. How will good works save you from death? Really good people are buried under the same amount of dirt as really bad people right next to each other in any graveyard in the nation. So how did, how, did, how did those people's good works, their betterness than their neighbor, save them from death? The short answer is, it didn't. It didn't. Right? How will good works save you from the devil, how will, who is much stronger and much smarter than you and me? How will your good works save you from your own propensity to worship yourselves? Which, if you're honest with yourself and you struggle with this, like I do, um, or just sin in general, like, we know that we, we don't have it within us, right, to repent or to turn. Like, it, 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 it's too hard. And so how will our good works, our own inner sense of goodness, do all of that? Here's the reality. All of humanity is a bunch of bunnies with hands on hearts celebrating our own inherent amazingness. This is what all humanity has always done. Without a clue about the hawk that has already started its downward dive to kill us right where we sit. They're like, oh, man, this is, I'm just so amazing. And there's a hawk like 10 feet above us, and we have seconds to live. Like, that's basically our story. And the hawk could care less if we're good or bad, right? 
The hawk's just hungry. The hawk could care less if you're good or bad. He just wants to eat, you know? So we need something more. We need something to shoot the hawks out of the sky and bunnies or squirrels can't hold guns. We need Jesus. This is the story. But th this right here on, on the left, th this is trash theology. This is garbage, you guys, garbage. We need to call this stuff out and say it's, God never says it, never comes a billion miles from saying this anywhere in the Bible or anywhere else. We need to call this out and say what is actually true. You know, we, we are not, this is not the point of the gospel, not the point of Christian living. Because if, if we think this on the left, why do we need God's son to die a bloody death for six hours among criminals on the cross 2,000 years ago again? And the answer to that is we absolutely don't need it, right? Or at least we have to say we, we need it less. And so if things, just kind of a rule of thumb, if things like this challenge the necessity of Jesus dying, it's not true, or it's bad theology, or at least massive red flags should go up. And you should think about it biblically and with other Christians to protect yourself from this garbage. So, so here, here's the good news then with Acts 3, with all, all this in mind. We come back to Acts 3, we see at the end of this passage, maybe some of you saw it, we see that God will save us by turning every one of us from our wickedness. So you see the different form of the verb? In the earlier part of the passage, it says turn, more the active form, right, the, the imperative or the command. Later here, it says by turning. So you will be turned or God will actively turn you. See how diff different forms are used? So we can both say turn and repent and believe in Jesus, which is good, we should, we should still do that. But it also says, but we're crippled so we can't. So actually behind the curtains of us making a choice to do that is God actively turning us himself towards himself. By grace. So it's by grace we're saved. Not even by our ability to turn well towards him. But it's by grace. It's, it's this good news that in the world now the Holy Spirit is moving to actively soften hearts, to turn us, to make the gospel intriguing, um, to convict us. Like two weeks ago we saw this, but the Holy Spirit's job is to make Jesus famous and to, like, show us Jesus. If you're here for that, you remember that. How the Holy Spirit's meant to be at work in the world to, like, put Jesus on display and to, like, turn us towards Christ. So if that's ever happened for you, most of your Christians in the room, when that happened, as that's happening, that is the active work of the Holy Spirit in that moment in your life because that doesn't happen from you or me or circumstance or luck. That's always God ca causing us, moving in us, turning us, um, to all of a sudden um, make the gospel matter. So again, like the cripple, we're lifted by the hand to face God. It's by grace we're saved. Did law save, the commandment save this man or Jesus? You know, as an unclean cripple, he couldn't even enter the temple, which represented the law in the Old Testament. But Jesus here, like he died outside the temple and like the Holy Spirit came outside the temple is also now working to heal outside the temple which reminds us that all of that happens apart from works and law symbolically speaking this is how the Bible thinks and talks geography matters where does salvation come if it came in the temple it would mean that you're saved cleansed but you still have to keep the law and keep the commandments but because it came outside the temple it means that there's no law over you anymore. You're not, like in Romans, Paul says repeatedly, on repeat, over and over again, you're not under law, but under grace. 
Therefore, sin will not have any mastery over you anymore because you're under this pronouncement of forgiveness and love and declaration of being a child of God, not under the conditionality of the, the, the Ten Commandments and other laws as well. All right, so a couple things to wrap this up. Uh, I think there's a unique aspect to this whole passage, a unique take or takes, and then a general. So start with the unique one. The first is this passage reminds us, kind of tells us maybe for the first time, if you haven't heard this before, but how do we view physical healing in the Bible and in our lives? This passage just uh, screams it. John 14, 12, write that down if you want to look this up later, but uh, it's where Jesus says, you will continue to do what I do, but you'll do greater things than what I did as well. The greater thing to be crystal clear is preaching the gospel. Because greater than walking on water, greater than physically healing someone once, but then later they die anyway, is telling someone they can be liberated from the clutches of hell as they bathe in the blood of Jesus. That is a better thing because Jesus says it is. It's a better thing because Peter says it is here. It's a better thing because the Bible says it is. And just by common sense, it's a better thing, right? It should be. If you don't feel that, then pray that God would help you to feel that more or to believe that. That's okay, but just let this shift your way of thinking that there are better things than other things in the world, and having a hierarchy there is, uh, is crucial. Spiritual healing is context for the gospel to rise up. It's, it's a platform or context, opportunity for the gospel to become visible, but it isn't the gospel itself. Now that, then relatedly, um, sometimes we think we need one thing, but God knows we need a greater thing. Like the cripple wanted money, but got healing, he didn't even know what he needed. Isn't that crazy? He didn't even ask for what he really needed, but God knew. Same with us. You know, I, I could say it more strongly and say, we, we just simply don't know what our greatest threat is, and so we need something outside of us to tell us this. We think we do, but we don't. But God does, and he loves us accordingly. But we will misunderstand in life. And that, again, that's okay. We're not saved by how well we understand this. It's just an opportunity for us to correct our way of thinking again. We'll misunderstand because we'll think that our problem is a paper cut when we have stage four pancreatic cancer. And we're upset that God's not giving us a Band-Aid for the paper cut. And that's just, um, that's a very unhealthy, un-God-glorifying way of thinking. And we, we just have to, maybe he will give a Band-Aid too. Maybe that's later. But right now he's worried about triage care and eradicating rogue cancerous cells from our body and we don't even realize we have it. All right, so clearly the cripple here, uh, the, the paralytic, he didn't even ask for the right thing, but God knew and he gave it anyway. That's just love. That's like a parent being a good parent, you know, and just saying, no, I'm probably not going to give you a sixth donut today um, because I know it's better for you. And just, yeah, pick your metaphor, right? But that's just love. That's just love. That's the unique takes on, on this passage. The, the general one is believe, it's, it's a call to belief, all right? This is the point of Acts 3, Christian or not, believe that Jesus was crippled for cripples like us and that his grace is more important than other needs in, in our lives. And then be encouraged. This man, again, I mentioned this, but this man even thought he was, he was saved even though he was asking for the wrong thing. Like that, That's a picture of somebody, I think, with bad theology who just has a mustard seed of faith that they don't understand, like all of us, to a degree, but just saying um, misunderstandings, but having a mustard seed of faith in the right direction and, and being saved regard. I mean, it, it's just crazy how big God's grace is here, how much it covers. It never stops. It's like the only thing the guy did was look at the apostles. 
right? They said, look at us. It's the same with God. God to us says, like, he's in the apostles, remember? We're like the cripple. He says, look at me. That's it. Look at me. Look at my son. Look at the cross. Believe. Bask in his shadow and his blood. Behold, gaze, look, stand in awe. All these kind of, they are active words, but they're also very passive because we're just looking at the, at the act, saving acts of God in the world, right? We're not producing them. We're receiving them. So do this. Look at the cross. Take the hand of Jesus. Rot, be raised from the dead. There's nothing you can do to save yourselves, guys. Be liberated in that. Even the apostles know this. Remember at the very end or in the middle when they say, why do you think that it's by our power or our what? Piety. Why do you think it's by our power or our religiousness or our goodness or our piety that, that this man walks among you? See, inst- instinctually as human beings, we think that we're something when we're nothing. You know, we look, we look and see, wow, something great happened or they're saved. They must have done something to impress God. They must have read a lot or fasted a lot or just been a really good individual or abstained from a lot or been ascetic enough. That's instantly how we think. But they're saying, why do you think we're pious or that this man's healed? Why do you put our works involved in this? Why do you insist on making it about us? That's their message, right? Like it's our power, like it's our goodness. No, we're terrible people. This is what Peter's saying. In other words, we're terrible people, you guys that God is just choosing to work through because of what his son did for us on the cross. Do you think like this? Or do you think something good happened, so I must have done something good for God? You know, see, in, in, in the same way, we should think, why do you insist on thinking that it's because of our piety that we're saved from our sins? Why do you insist on thinking that, I mean, I'm saying this not just to you guys, but just broadly speaking, right? Like, as we interact with our wayward hearts and with a world that's wondering what in the world's going on with us. Why, why, why do we insist on, on thinking it's because of our piousness, it's because of our good works that we're saved? Even the apostles get this, right? Here. Not just the cripple. The apostles get it too. There's nothing you can do to save yourselves. There's nothing you can do. Just nothing you can do. So stop trying and start grasping again and afresh every single day. Christian, you don't graduate from this. So start grasping for dear life, for Jesus' bloody body on that cross. It is through and through and through, and Acts 3 is yet another tick on the greater storyline of of redemptive history that tells us this message. There's nothing we can do except reaching for that bloody body of Jesus Christ and believing and trusting in him alone to save us. Let's pray. Father, thank you, for, uh, thank you for today. 